Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Right now, we got to turn to what's happening in the United Kingdom, given the fact that Boris Johnson is officially playing a game of chicken with his opponents, saying, if you won't back me, let's hold another election and see what happens. Regardless, October 31st comes. We are leaving the European Union. Joining us now, Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics and economics. Uh, she joins us from our London bureau. So, Therese, why did Boris Johnson take this gamble to basically uh, pose an ultimatum to his even in-party opponents? Well, I think the answer to that is very simple. Boris Johnson made a, a categorical promise to conservatives, to Brexiters, uh, and to leave voters, to leave the European Union on October 31st, do or die, deal or no deal. His prime ministership absolutely rests on him being able to deliver on that promise. He therefore cannot um, oblige those in Parliament who want him to seek an extension. So if the negotiations that he says are uh, proceeding, although the European Union doesn't seem to be very aware that there are negotiations going on, um, but if those don't produce an outcome, he has to be prepared to deliver on, on, on his promise. So um, he has now faced with a uh, opposition and Tory rebel movement to try to force him to ask for an extension. And rather than see that play out or get into the messy business of, you know, say, asking the Queen not to approve the legislation, uh, which would, uh, you know, throw Britain into an even greater constitutional crisis, it's assumed that he is going to try to trigger an early election. But it's not automatic since he needs Parliament's approval for it. All right. So, Therese, give us kind of a sense of next steps. How did how would this unfold? How does, you know, a, a British snap election uh, ta actually take place? Right. So the next sort of 48, 72 hours are pretty critical. There'll be a vote uh, tonight on the uh, bill that to try to force the government to ask for an Article 50 extension. Um, if that uh, goes through, we would expect uh, Boris Johnson to try to trigger a October 14th election. Now, then the question becomes, what is the Labour Party's response? They, The Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, has indicated he doesn't want an election on, on Johnson's timetable. He may seek to, uh, to put some kind of condition on it. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of uh, machinations using parliamentary procedures, and we won't know yet whether there'll be a snap election. I, I mean, not everyone agrees with this, but if there is a snap election before October 31st, it may lower the probability of a no-deal exit, because if we assume that there's sort of a 50-50 chance of Boris coming back with a majority or a, say, Remain-leaning coalition taking over, then, you know, you start to see other options uh, um alternatives to no deal. And I think that's sort of, you know, why Sterling kind of perked up um, after the initial decline on the news of uh, an early election. Therese, I, I want to figure out what the popular feeling is in the United Kingdom. If there were to be a snap election, is the prevailing sentiment that Boris Johnson would win? 
It really depends on the grounds on which that election is fought. So Theresa May was 24 points ahead in the polls in 2017 when she fought an election. Turned out that election was fought on turf that the Labor Party said on domestic policies, and she squandered her parliamentary majority. Now, Boris Johnson does not want this election to be about Europe. He wants it to be about Jeremy Corbyn, and he wants it to be about the fear that many voters have of Corbynomics, of a socialist uh, uh candidate in office. So he will try to uh, talk about all the spending that his government will do, not a typical conservative government. They've opened the, they want to open the spending spigots. He'll make it about a Corbyn prime ministership and he'll, of course, promise to deliver Brexit. If he succeeds on that, and crucially, if the Brexit party do not field candidates in the same constituencies that would cannibalize off the conservative party vote, then he's got, you know, a, a pretty good chance, according to what polls are telling us right now. Uh, what we don't know is whether the Remain leading parties, the Labor Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, will strike some kind of a, a tactical arrangement that will allow them to um, you know, to maximize a uh, the sort of Remain vote in elections. It's very unpredictable. We have four parties that are all polling fairly well. Yeah, it's interesting. I was wondering if, you know, if it weren't Barsh, if it weren't Corbin, who else could the other side put up to perhaps be more of a, a remain candidate? Well, if you're talking about a sort of national unity candidate, which is been the subject of a lot of discussion here around the um, question of a no confidence vote, because then the uh, those voting no confidence in the government would need to put forward an alternative. Um, you know that 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 whole discussion was sort of dead on arrival because Corbyn, as the opposition leader, absolutely refuses to countenance another candidate. So I think you know we're looking at Joe Swinson, the Liberal Democratic leader, who's who's quite popular. Her party has been revived off the back of its uh, very strongly pro-Remain stance, and so. She will be expected, her party right. will be expected to do well in an election. But there's, you know, the, Corbyn is the main yep. opposition leader right now, and that's been a big blessing for Boris Johnson. Yes, it has. Therese Raphael, thank you so much. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics and economics, uh, joining us from the London Brewer. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion and on the terminal by typing O-P-I-N-Go. Tom Stringfellow, President and Chief Investment Officer of Frost Investment Advisors, based in San Antonio, Texas, but joining us here today in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Tom, thanks so much for uh, making the trip to our studio. Again, uh, so much volatility uh, in the marketplace, driven in, in large part by the ebbs and flows of trade talks. How do you position your portfolio? How do you think about kind of your investment process, given some of the volatility that we have been seeing? That's a great question. It's something that our clients are asking on a continual basis, and we're certainly hearing it in the uh, in the media these days. It's so difficult to you know trade in an environment like this because the news, as you said, ebbs and flows, and the volatility ebbs and flows. So when we look at how the markets have done year to date, we're still positive across the board, across every major benchmark and throughout most sectors. So we're really cautious on making any extreme moves in this market, but we're always constantly looking for, you know, what is, uh, where are the growth opportunities in companies? Where is more limited volatility? We want to see earnings visibility, although that's harder and harder to find. And to the extent you can find companies that are actually providing some kind of dividend stream, I think that just adds to the underlying st strength, sustainability of the companies. 
So, Tom, what you're talking about, more defensive companies, companies that pay dividends, uh, companies that are more immune to business cycles, are ones that have been favored by a lot of other investors, leading some to say they're getting to pretty high valuations at this point. What do you say to people who say, you know, are you just worried those, those companies are too expensive? And again, that's excuse me, another fair point because valuations have certainly come off trough levels. But I wouldn't say that across the board, a lot of these good quality companies are trading at excessive premiums. Uh, if I look at you know over prior periods, you know we've come into a market environment where I'd say multiples are sustainable. Uh, markets are rational. Uh, multiples are rational. We don't see anything that is those that are trading excessive premiums. Those are ones we do want to shy away from. So if, depending upon how you look at the equity markets, the S&P, you know, you get glass half full, glass half empty, whether it's year to date, you know, good yeah. solid double digits, but on a trailing 12 month basis, kind of flattish down a little bit. What sectors, given that kind of odd performance, what sectors are you guys still looking at or still maybe offer some opportunities? Well, some of the groups in technology are still positive. You know, again, if we look at software manufacturers, you know, there's a number of, of good sectors that are interesting sectors. Uh, in the retail consumer discretionary, you know, we've seen some uh, interesting data on Amazon here recently. You know, uh, that tends to be one of the go-tos for a lot of investors. Uh, the question is how long, how sustainable is it over the next several years? I just know that the number of Amazon boxes I get at my house increases daily, so that tells me something. Uh, the um, sectors that I think tend to be a little more overbought and, and yet be really cautious of are those that are more bond proxies. You know, that falls into the, you know, the utilities, real estate. There's still good opportunities, but there should be some warning signs there. So I guess we're talking a lot about U.S. equities. Do you think that U.S. equities will continue to be the outperformer globally? Near term, I do. You know, uh, Europe has you know some great valuations these days for a lot of obvious reasons, and you know the one thing that you don't want to do is walk away from the European markets or the international markets. Just look at a long term period, and there are several years where those sectors of the market are some of the top performers, and they occur in almost a heartbeat. So you you need to stay with a foothold in them, but I don't think it's a focus of all your investable dollars here in the U.S. We have visible growth here. We have uncertainty geopolitical there. So we got some ISM data, the disappointing manufacturing data uh, out today. Uh, again, arguably putting more pressure on the consumer to continue to carry uh, this economy. And again, we'll have the jobs report out on Friday. Kind of what is your view of the consumer right here? And should we be concerned? Yeah, and great point. You know, if you looked at Friday, the data from the regional uh, Fed offices was was positive. Today just went counter. The ISM turning negative. You know, that is probably one of those factors that the Fed's got to look at in, as they're looking at rate cuts. And with that in mind, the consumer hasn't really seemed to care. You know, I'm I'm just amazed at how, re how resilient the confidence surveys are. If we only turn that confidence into actual purchasing power, you know, that may take care of a lot of the ills we have right now. But, you know, we've we've seen a, a bifurcation of the, uh, you know, uh, University of Michigan and consumer confidence. You know, they've they've kind of uh, separated, uh, uh, diverted from one another here recently. But overall, I'd say the consumer is still looking at a positive six months, 12 months ahead. We've not seen it in the uh, the business sector, though. What do your clients ask you right now? Asset allocation is probably one of the key questions these days because we've tried to 
uh, you know, <laughs> learn with our clients that, you know, picking a particular stock isn't going to necessarily be the key to their success. It's staying invested. And the question, though, is what are the target investments and that proverbial how much bonds versus cash? And, you know, where you say cash would always be that, um, that safety net for investors. Well, fixed income has gotten a little more risky these days as yields have continued to... Uh, to plunge as dollars are moving into it. I find that so unique in this market. The uh, the risk trade is becoming a more risk-on trade as investors are moving into bonds. We are talking about staying into shorter maturities, intermediate to lower duration fixed income. Don't take chances on longer term. That's speculative. But staying invested in the right uh, sectors in the equity markets, that's key. And uh, having good quality is key. Anything we need to just stay away from here? We're 10 plus years into this uh, cycle. Well, as I've read many times, markets don't die of old age, but they die because of uh, an overly aggressive Fed heightening or a uh, sector bubble or that unexplained uh, unforeseen risk. We have an accommodating central bank globally. We have no real sectors that I would consider bubble territory. What we don't know is whether or not trade or the UK or geopolitical with Russia, China becomes that unknown. We know about it, so I'm not so convinced that those are the unknowns that worry us today. Tom Stringfellow, thank you so much for being with thank us. Thank you. Tom Stringfellow is President and Chief Investment Officer at Frost Investment Advisors, usually based in San Antonio. Joining us now, Jason Shanker, president of Prestige Economics and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Jason, I want to get started with why, right? I mean, is this a really a function of people looking around and saying it's unlikely the U.S. and China will come to any kind of trade agreement? Or is this people looking around saying the global economy is slowing, period, the end? Yeah, I think it's both. Uh, if you look at what's going on with the PMI data, uh, not only did we have the U.S. ISM manufacturing index uh, contract uh, for the first time in a few years, but we've also had uh, the combined Eurozone Saishin manufacturing PMI out of China and the U.S. ISM. We combine those and look at all three together, and they're at the lowest levels right now since December of 2012. So during the European sovereign debt crisis and then after. And this is the third consecutive month that a sum of those three PMIs is below a break even of 150. In other words, 60% of global manufacturing has been contracting for three consecutive months. So, Jason, as you just summarized, uh, you know, the oil market's really being driven in large part by the uh, slowing demand across uh, the globe. Give us a sense of what the supply situation looks right now. Well, you know, supply is fairly robust. We have the the situation with uh, shale barrels that can be brought relatively quickly to market. You know, we've seen OPEC, and I, I think y'all know we've done radio hits when I've gone to OPEC meetings. I'll be at the one this December. You know, they've worked with non-OPEC members to try to curtail production, but the U.S. is you know, been going into this year, the risk was that we'd see between, uh, you know, one and a half and two million barrels of shale oil per day added to the market. And China's the biggest net uh, marginal consumer of oil. And, and they've been contracting in manufacturing terms in five of the last nine months. So, you know, there's the supply situation isn't particularly tight and the demand side is not great. And the U.S. summer driving season is over, which also you know, here we are coming back from Labor Day weekend. The driving season 
ended on the NYMEX in the third week of July, but now it's also physically over. And that means that there was more downside risk to oil prices after the driving season ends because there's this seasonal drop off in what's called shoulder demand. Jason, I read a number of stories overnight talking about how Hurricane Dorian would affect somehow the demand side of the equation, lowering it in certain regions, certainly in Florida, et cetera, as people hunker down to weather the storm. How much credence is there in that kind of, I guess, explanation of today's route? I don't think that's a big chunk of that. I mean, the summer driving season's over. You know, if this was 4th of July weekend, we might be having a very different conversation. But, you know, we're past Labor Day. I don't think that's a a really big part of it because, I, I you know, the summer driving season's over. And furthermore, I, as I mentioned, it, it ended on the NYMEX uh, on the 22nd, I think, of July when the contract rolled to September, right? We're trading October crude as a prompt month. Refiners are not as incentivized to hedge at this time. Uh, and so there's just not as big a bid in the market because the downside risk is already greater because demand is off. So, Jason, what's the latest uh, you know, policy or posturing uh, coming out of OPEC these days? Well, you know, I think they're trying to, to hold together the, uh, the coalition they have with non-OPEC members and convey the fact that, you know, they're, they're keeping a tight rein on production to prevent it from getting out of control. Because when prices really collapsed between 2014 and 2016, what happened was, and people talk a lot about shale, but the truth is there was a Chinese manufacturing recession going on at that exact same time period. And that's what drove down not just oil, but rubber, nickel, tin, lead, zinc, iron ore, copper, you name it, all the the metals and industrial commodities took hits. And if you look right now, oil isn't just at risk to the downside, but you know we've seen aluminum, copper, and almost all industrial metals, except for nickel and iron ore. And there are a couple of exception reasons for that. One's an Indonesian export ban on nickel, and iron ore had some supply disruption issues earlier in the year. Um, that, that's going to continue to weigh forward. But uh, aside from those exceptions, most industrial metals have been absolutely whacked this year, and that isn't the function of uh, the hurricane, and it's the reason that oil prices are under pressure. It's because the global economy is, is slowing down quite quickly. Just quickly here, I'm looking right now at a crude traded on the NYMEX, trading at $53.16. Where do you think we're going by year-end? Well, you know, I think there's there's going to be some more downside risk from where we are now for WTI. You know, if we lose another five bucks, wouldn't surprise me. Um, it, it's going to depend on what happens with the messaging from OPEC kind of late in the year. But there, there's more downside risk. There's easily I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a price in the forty five to fifty dollar range uh, in that time window. Is there anything OPEC could do in the short term, do you think, to impact supplies? You know, it, honestly, there's a saying in the commodities world, commodities are bought and not sold. And if the buying slows up and if we see things pull back, if China remains under pressure, uh, as we, we expect, the global economy remains under pressure, those kinds of things could uh, you know, continue to land prices. That's really outside of OPEC's control. All they can do is try to keep inventories right. from ballooning so that the, the, the downward bearish price pressure doesn't hang over the next few years the way it did after 2016. Jason Schenker, thanks so much for joining us. Jason's a president of Prestige Economics, also the chairman of the Futurist Institute and a Bloomberg opinion contributor uh, based in Austin, Texas.
Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Leland Miller, Chief Executive Officer of the China Beige Book International. So what actually is going on between the U.S. and China? We had one of the busiest months you can ever imagine. And I think the next month is going to be clawing back some of the damage done over the last four weeks. So if you look back to what happened in the beginning of August, we had the President Trump extend tariffs, if not shooting the gun, then loading, locking and loading the gun for all 550 billion worth of China, uh, tariffs on, on all 550 billion of Chinese imports uh, by December 15th. And since then, there's been a bit of damage control because they realized that, well, one, you're not going to have as much leverage if you shoot all those tariffs. And the second thing is the markets didn't like that very much. And, and, and so you've seen a very negative market reaction. And the White House is trying to come to terms with how do you, how do you wage the war on China using tariffs at the same time as you manage expectations on a trade war and, 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 and hope that you are also encouraging businesses to invest and to produce. And, and of course, you're seeing some of that in the ISM surveys. And so uh, right now, the White House is, is trying to, to some degree, walk back some of the, some of the, some of the damage done. And they're trying to figure out how to, how to make September a more productive month. Lena, what is your sense of the likelihood that President Trump has just had enough of this trade thing? He's just going to kick the can down the road and wait till after the election. He kind of suggests it's a little bit of that in his tweets this morning. Yeah, I think that, that that's that was likely, but I think it's even more likely that the Chinese are done with this. So the the weird dynamic that has been sort of coming together since June, when there was still the possibility of a trade deal uh, before the, before the 2020 election, is that you you've seen both sides come to this de facto stalemate, and there's lots of ups and downs. I mean, we saw with August just how big the ups and downs could be, but neither side really wants to get to the end of this. There's an incentive to stay connected through negotiations and to make sure markets aren't falling off a cliff because they think that the trade war has is, 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 is gone past the point of no return. But at the same time, nobody wants to give up ground. Nobody wants to make any, any real um, concessions. And it looks like both sides no longer have any faith whatsoever in each other. One thing that markets seem to be betting on is that there's a Trump put that if markets sell off enough, President Trump will uh, make nice with China. At what point can President Trump no longer make nice with China, even if he wants to? He's pretty close to that point. That's why the what happened in August, I think, was an inflection point for this entire trade war. Before that, you had the possibility that the Chinese, things could go in any direction. You could have more tariffs, you could have the same level of tariffs, which were a lot, but not an overwhelming amount, or you really could have some sort of deal small one, big one, whatever it might be, and pull the tariffs off. And I think markets were attuned to that. You're at the point now where you're almost all in. And it's not that you don't have the possibility of a deal, but the Chinese are very much disincentivized from having any type of deal unless they get everything they want at this point. Uh, and those would be politically toxic concessions for the president to then make. So you're getting very close to the point where both sides are locking in for the, for the duration. So when these full tariffs on the full 550 billion go into effect, will this have a big effect on our economy, their economy? Who's more going to feel it more, do you think? It'll be more that, first of all, it's not necessarily so that they're going to go into effect. I mean, okay. you're, I think that between now, here's my guess, okay. between now and the end of the year, you're going to see tariffs that are announced, punted at least once, probably twice. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the October tariffs 
uh, punted soon as part of a, China, a concession to China to get them to come to a trade meeting. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if the December tariffs are ultimately punted in return for something or other. So I think that's not that's not set in stone yet. Uh, but overall, China is China. This will hurt China much more. This is an overwhelming amount of tariffs. It'll hurt them more. But they also have more staying power over the long run. From a game theory perspective, would China double down and not give any concessions whatsoever in order to basically tank markets and, you know, influence the 2020 elections? Yeah, so this is this is where the game theory gets really fun because boy, that was conspiratorial on you. No, <laughs> it's not conspiratorial because I think yeah. that I mean I'm wondering that is how China mm-hmm. potentially is thinking. No, no, it's a weapon in their arsenal. I think what they would like to do at this point is try to step in where possible to make sure things don't get worse, uh, but keep one foot in the door no matter how bad things get, so long as a handful of red lines aren't crossed, like. You don't have a, a true death sentence for Huawei, et cetera. Uh, and, and keep their foot in the door because while they don't want to be barraged with all these tariffs that are hitting now and will be hitting in the future, there's a lot of other things that, that you, the U.S. administration could do to make life miserable for China. You could see more attention to Xinjiang and Hong Kong, sanctions there. You could see South China Sea ra- uh, rise in importance. You could see greater coordination with Taiwan, whether it's diplomatic visits or, or another arms sale. Uh, you could, of course, see a, an all-out barrage by Congress on the Chinese tech companies. Both sides are itching to do that. So China's in this weird place where they don't want to do anything, but they also don't want to completely remove themselves from the board because then things will get worse. So this is where you get the, the stalemate. Where does, how does Hong Kong fit into this? This does not seem to be going away for the Chinese. Well, it's a horrible headache for Xi. It's, a, it's obviously a tragedy for, for, for the people of Hong Kong and the world. Um, I mean, Ch- Hong Kong is being changed in front of our eyes for forever. Uh, this is not going to go back the other way. And I think that the timing of this is uncertain, but there's there's really no way for there to be any other resolution than one that involves force um, the Chinese side. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to have the images that they had in a Tiananmen-like crackdown uh, that Hong Kong doesn't look that way. And uh, the Chinese are much more experienced now. So you'll see riot police step in. Maybe they're in Hong Kong uh, policeman's uniform or not. Uh, and and, and ultimately, they will step in and, and restore order. Um, so it'll be a very different type of, uh, of tragedy than what we saw in the past. But it, it, it's, it's sad nonetheless. And I don't see how it can be avoided. Just to sort of uh, tie everything together, I want to just get a gut check on the Chinese economy, since this is what you track so well. Where are we in terms of how much the growth is slowing there? Yeah, we just got some uh, some new flash data a few days ago, uh, and um, you know we're we, we don't report all of this uh, publicly, but we can say that it doesn't look good. And you know we have we have not been on the pessimist train for 2019. In fact, we were some of the people who who were loudest in saying, "Look, this this narrative that the economy's falling apart it's nonsense." I remember There's that. a lot more policy support underneath the surface, particularly in Q2, that has kept the economy from falling apart. Well, Q3 is feeling some serious strains and 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 manufacturers in particular are. So, this is going to be something to watch next month next month when we announce our full third quarter uh, set of data. And we'll have you back to discuss it. Clearly, there's no one better to talk China and China economics uh, and China trade than Leland Miller, CEO of the China Beige Book International, joining us uh, live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.